Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, a discussion with author and forager Diego Bonetto. In his book, Eight Weeds, Bonetto shows readers how to engage with wild food sources through identification guides and with 20 recipes for food and remedies. Bonetto posits that it's time to reconnect with the stories of our ancestors and care. Now, here's the host of the discussion, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. This book, Eight Weeds, has been created by the wonderful people at Thames and Hudson. And on behalf of Thames and Hudson, and on behalf of Readings, I'm delighted to welcome you all here to this Zoom event. And to all of those listening on the Readings podcast, hello and welcome. But before we start talking about the paddocks, about the gutters, about the riverways, the seaside, I want us all to imagine that we're in that bush, we're in that paddock and we're looking up at that glorious sky. I want us all to take that moment to reflect that that's not our land. That's not land that's owned by us. It's owned by the first people of Australia, by the First Nations. And I reckon in 2022... It's not enough to send our respects to the First Nations people, to their elders. I think that in actual fact what we've got to do now is just take some time and be still in the beautiful environments that have been created for us and just imagine what it was like for the First Nations people before we came blustering along before all of those crimes were committed. And I reckon we've got to take some time out to acknowledge what an extraordinary gift the First Nations people of Australia have given us. And I know that you're all here because you like foraging, because you like the great outdoors, and because you like ideas. Well, I reckon 2022 is the time that we stop and we listen and we learn. On that note, I want to introduce you to someone who has travelled a long way to get here, who has travelled a long way to get to Australia to actually do that very thing that I'm asking you to do, to sit, to be quiet and be aware of the environment. Diego Bonetto, hello and congratulations to you. What a thrill it is to be talking to someone who's been foraging since he was a wee, wee one. Welcome. Thank you, Christine. So looking forward to this talk tonight. So this is your first book, Eat Weeds. It's a catchy title. It, <laughs> it's direct and to the point. Did you come up with it? No, the title is... A strong point with my uh, with Marnie, my partner and wife, and we were talking about what to name the books and why beating around the bush. The book <laughs> is about getting people to realize the abundance everywhere, and what better title? It weeds. There's plenty of them. There's plenty of them. So you learned these sort of skills of rummaging around your neighbourhood and getting food for the evening meal from your family. Can you take us through to what it was like growing up in Italy and learning all of these tricks of the trade? Okay. So growing up in a dairy farm, 
It's not as romantic as you would like it to be. I can make an Italian romantic, but yeah, no, it's a dairy farm. A dairy farm is a working farm and you need to be present, attending to your animals twice a day, 365 days a year. Mm. There's no Christmas, there's no birthday, there's no wedding, there's no I'm sick, mommy, can I stay home? No, none of that. So 365 days a year, two times a day, you got to be there for the animals. So that's dairy farm. And as a young lad, looking at all of these other people were doing all sorts of things like going in holiday, going to the city, you know, and I was looking at them going, what, what, how do you do that? <laughs> so there you have it. So it kind of undermined a little bit the romanticism of daily life. <laughs> but that said, it was beautiful. It was me, four sisters, and we were in and out of the farm, in and out in the fields, in the woods, by the river, all the time. And where was uh, the farm located? The farm was in northwest Italy, so just under the Alps, and on the other side is France, and on this side is Piemontese people, and Piemontese is my language, Piemontese is my people. So, yeah, so just on the lowland, just under the mountains, rich, deep, black soil of the northern Italy. So amazing soil, amazing things, and lots of work, twice a day. For those that haven't read this book, and I encourage you all to have this book to be lying around your house because it is the type of book that you can dip into and you can dip out of. And there's, you know, recipes and there's advice throughout. But the opening pages are in some ways very touching. They talk about your story of growing up and being taught to forage, but not in a way that this was an exceptional skill. No. But this was just the way of life. Indeed, foraging is the way of life of all of us, all of us, all over the world. It's fair to say, safe to say that three generations ago, the knowledge contained in that book was in everyone's skill set. Our grandmothers would not need a funny guy with a funny accent to tell her what she can eat of the backyard. Our grandmothers, wherever they are from, they would have known because the skills of foraging, how we intend them today, which is collecting food from the wild, is the oldest of skills and the, the skill has been practiced up to still now. It's practiced still now, but now it's in the closet. It's just surviving more appropriation of market by uh, by just surviving in pockets in little hubs of people that keep it alive so foraging is still practiced today not as much as everyone used to but you know of course indigenous people the grandmasters the oldest continuous culture in the world which ensures that still now these people that bring the stories of how to engage with land responsibly and with care are still told today. And alongside all of this, there is the foraging knowledge of the culture from all over the world that live in this country now, and the plants related to this knowledge too. So it's a mix of incredible potential. We basically, we have the possibility to walk out, out of the door and fall in love with everything moving, if you only knew how to love it. 
So what I can't imagine is there you are in Italy and this, you know, in your dairy farm. I understand it's a lot of work and you've learned to, to forage and you've grown up with this big family. And then you come to Australia where it's not done. Foraging is not done in that same sort of way in the cities and in the towns. You must have thought these Australians are the blandest bunch of people I've ever met in my life. Yes and no. Yes and no. <laughs> when I moved to Australia in the mid-90s, I went to the country and I went to work in orchards. I went to work in garden centres. That's where I encounter generally the way farmers and gardeners engage and treat or know their land. I was working in orchards and I was telling farmers who farmed that land for generations what plants that were growing in the farm, and which in Italy wouldn't have happened. Mm. You know, in my culture, you know, the farmers of my small village they wouldn't know, not by scientific name, but they wouldn't know by name every single thing that is around them. Because knowledge is continuous, it's always been practiced. So there is kind of an interesting disconnection and disproportional mistrust against plants that people didn't plant. So people know very well the plants they buy at Bunnings or the seed stock or whatever the agribusiness plants, they know what they look like. And they kill everything else yeah. without yeah. without respect, without knowing, without caring, because that is not what they would like to grow. Mm. So that was very interesting. I thought, like, oh, okay, you know, that's you know, that's food and medicine. Oh no, 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 it's a weed. Okay, can <laughs> I just harvest it if you don't want it? <laughs> so yeah, very interesting, very interesting. People were pleased to have this extra knowledge coming in and saying what you're harvesting now is dandelion leaves or sorrel or whatever it might have been. I mean, once you show people and, and give people the chance to witness and to uh, taste and touch and understand the value of one or the other plants, the perspective changed straight away. The, the bottom line here, what's missing the most is knowledge. Farm people, they love the land, you know, so there's no doubt about it. You know, I'm not undermining and, you know, gardeners love plants and mm. uh, stakeholders care about their resources. So it's not that is missing. What's missing is the knowledge and understand mm. what they're dealing with, you know, and, and, and the possibilities that come out of it. I do not want to come across as rude or minimizing the love for land in this country. That's not the case. I'm just saying that Lots of people didn't know what they were looking at. Mm. I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about, you know, modern Australia and it's made up with all these people coming from all over the world, the First Nations people haven't had the opportunity, enough opportunities to be able to teach all yeah. our settlements, all us colonials, yeah. how, what to do with this beautiful land. And then you come along, this Italian bloke who's, who's come across and says, actually, here are some of the things that we can do. And it seems to me that you actually hit some sort of zeitgeist in Australia because when you start thinking about the food that you're promoting here and the plants that you're promoting, I'm seeing these dishes in fancy restaurants now. It's not unusual to be served dandelions there. Absolutely. This didn't happen 10 years ago. And you hit the nails uh, on the head right there because it's not that I came to Australia and I had the knowledge and I opened up doors and possibility. It's actually that 
now the people are more susceptible. They want to know. So it's a societal change, and I'm just the fruit of that change. So I'm just the one who had the knowledge because I've been running workshop about teaching people about you know, about plants and what they're looking at and how to cook it. I've been doing this for 20 years, mm-hmm. and I've increased the attention, the curiosity. I've seen it blowing out of proportion in the 20 years. And this is not because I'm good at telling stories. This is because people want to hear the story. What is that? Is that? Do you think it's being driven by an environmental sort of knowledge or do you think it's being driven by the fear that the entire environment movement is put, you know, is that to crumble down onto our shoulders and we all actually should be eating food within five-kilometre radius? Absolutely. To be fair, Christina, I think different people come to foraging for different reasons. Right, interesting. And at times, very different driving forces. Like, I, I can give you a couple of examples of demographics, you know, profiles. So, say, lots of young families come to my workshops because they want their kids to have the experience. Mm. They want to introduce the kids to the possibility of touching, smelling, tasting, picking up something from the ground, have the experience of engaging with resources so that they're not completely disenfranchised and removed from the processes of ecology. And are these young families, are they coming from the cities? They come from all over, the city, the country. They come because they want the kids to have some good skills so that when they carry on, they have better eyes to see ecologies. Mm. So young families Mm. come to my workshops. Hospitality industry goes without saying, you know, chefs, mixologists, they're all over it because it's new produce, something new to play with, something new to bring, a new exciting narrative, Mm. plate, a new exciting narratives. You know, I have a lot to say about the hospitality industry, what they're doing for the environment today, it's unbelievable. You know, the narratives they bring on. It's good, right? It's good news. Absolutely. Nostalgia, local food, seasonality, all of these very important narratives that we should just all embrace, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're taking it to the people at a high level of service. So they popularize it and they make it, how would you say? They put the spotlight on it. So, you know, incredible, much respect to hospitality industry, what they're doing at the moment. On, on the weekend, I went to quite a fancy restaurant, Diego, and I yeah. was there eating a, a dandelion dusted beans and, you know, they had flavoured it with these lovely yeah. little things. And yeah. I literally looked out of the window and there was a dandelion growing yeah. out. I was like, Okay. Yes. Yeah. And, and which is good. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. This. Yeah. Because these plants are our co evolutionary species. Are the plants that are being exploiting what we as a species do to land since forever. Yeah. So many of them, the vast majority of them, became our food and medicine, you know, became our agricultural crops, the market garden crops are all glorified weeds. All of them. They just the one we selected because it makes a lot of food, and another one we just always just harvested wild because it's better to keep it wild. You do not need to have that many. And then the line you need to grow and the line. Then the line grow itself. So there we've got the young families, and we've got 
chefs and cocktail yep. makers all wanting to know what sort yep. of flavours they can bring. Yep. Is there anyone else that attends these? Old migrants. Yeah. Old migrants with their family come to my workshops mm-hmm. because they know it all. And they were made fun of and they were just embarrassed, embarrassed the whole family harvesting the dandelion in the park and the daughter's going, don't do that. (laughs) And now they come for revenge. They come (laughs) to get their own fair share of spotlight. So I know that, oh, that is good, a little oil, a little salt, just like that. Mm, You know, and... (laughs) And there's an incredible amount of knowledge in the closet in this country, yeah? Because let's not forget, the vast majority of migrants, they came from Australia. They are economic migrants. They came from poor background, many of them peasants. They came over here for a better life, for prospects of a better life. But they come from the land. Many, many, many come from poor rural situations. Yes, so they have knowledge. They just don't know how to practice. They always felt a bit ashamed of practicing their knowledge because it was kind of dumb pudding, you know, like last generation people were saying, well, don't you have money? You're picking weeds from the park? Oh, let me buy you lunch. You know, these days... People who pick wins in the park gonna put it on the plates, and you probably elevate the price of the plates of about fifty dollars. I cannot believe how much I paid for dandelion on the weekend. We don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're doing these workshops, and you say that you've been creating them for twenty years, and I imagine that that knowledge that you've gained from running these workshops was really fed into this book, Eat Weeds. Yeah. So. What, what are the sort of most common questions that the people ask? Quite blunt. What it is, mm. can I eat it? What it is, can I eat it? How do I make sure I'm not poisoning myself? In your book you say something like, look, if it's a stick, it probably is a stick. It works. <laughs> you know what I notice? I live in the sort of the, the north of Melbourne and there's lots of parkways. There's uh, You can walk to creeks and you can walk to rivers where I live. And over the last couple of months, what I'm noticing is a lot of foraging for mushrooms. Right. All different types. And I think people are looking for all different types of mushrooms. Yeah. So do you have some advice for these north side Melbourne people that are really trying to find some for their meals and some for after their meals, I would believe? Yeah. So <laughs> slow down. Mushroom foraging is not something you just jump on with um, with a clip from YouTube trying to match the colour of what you're looking at. Mushroom is a different kingdom. It's not a plant. And before you approach mushroom, you need to understand that it's, a, it's not a plant. It's a different kingdom. You need to gain a whole extra level of identification skills before you engage with that. The best way to engage with mushrooms is by far like it always happened all over the world since forever, is go out with your uncle and aunties. You go out with your people and they take you out and they tell you, this is it, this is not. Can you tell the difference? Okay, if you can't tell the difference, come back next week and we start all over again. Mm. So makes sense what I'm saying? So you need to go out with people with knowledge to empower yourself with the person answering the questions, the physicality of the feature you need to look at. Because two-dimensional images 
are only two-dimensional images. Organisms change shape, color, size, behavior, depending on the condition they grow. So one image can never be enough to identify all of the variables that that particular species might have, even to the level that that species can actually be something else looking like that species. You know, you need to um, wisen up, slow down. And I mean, this great, great way have a safe uh, approach to the kingdoms. Like easy example is in pine forest all over Australia, from south of Brisbane all the way to Perth, you can get pine mushrooms. Pine mushrooms grow in pine plantations and it's the beginner mushrooms. It's the mushroom that anyone can understand. It's very easy. The identification features are very visible so that you cannot make a mistake. And they look alike in that specific ecologies, which is monocultures, pine plantations, are non-existent. So, you know, once you understand what you're looking at, they're very safe. That said, read all about it and then go and find your uncle. I think that go find your uncle is actually the greatest advice that you can give. And it's no surprise to me that your workshops are so popular. I want to talk a little bit about your chapter or your your section on the seaside. I was so taken with the beautiful illustrations and photos of the seaweeds and the different varieties, the different meals, the different sort of dishes that you can create. Of course, people have been doing this for centuries, but actually here in Australia, I hadn't realised how much our seas can give us. Can you elaborate a little on that? Yes, so the vast majority of Australia is within 100 kilometres from the coast. Mm. So the sea is an untapped resource. And lots of people who live right next to the seas know that. But not everyone, actually. There's lots of people who live, particularly in an urban environment, who live by the sea and got no idea what they're looking at. Different people have been engaging with sea resources from forever. And uh, I think what's striking, in my opinion, of the specific ecology of the seas is the available of seaweeds, edible seaweeds, that they come by the buckets. By the buckets, on a regular basis, they come on the beach. Seaweeds can come across as a bit of a challenging proposition for many people because if you do not have the culture of the narratives that allow you to appreciate such a gift, it might just feel a bit, wow, I'm not going to eat that. It looks like a shoe, which, you know, potentially is also true. That's it, you know. So I propose four seaweeds on my book. Salty, yummy, very common, very common. The striking part of seaweed is that, as opposed to mushrooms, there is no toxic species. It might taste awful. You will never eat it again. But you're not going to die from it. You're not going to die from it, you know. <laughs> you know and seaweeds actually is regarded these days as kind of a very important untapped resource for a whole number of reasons, because for food security, I mean, we're talking about a resource high in proteins, high in minerals, high in nutritional value that can be grown without fresh water, without dirt, out in the sea. So, you know, we're talking about the results that can be mass-produced and, and churned and transformed into the food of the future. 
you know, there's lots of tension happening in the space. I mean, the, obviously, there's cultures around the world, particularly Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, that they have lots to say about seaweed, and they use them regularly in the dishes, mm. and we as well, you know, sushi and so forth. But also other cultures like the Irish. So seaweeds are not that, in Welsh people, seaweeds are not that exotic and strange. You know, lava brand is Welsh. You know, we've been eating seaweeds before. In your beautiful book, you have these different sections. You know, you have the fungi, you have this, the seas, you have the rivers, the pond. What was your favourite section to work on? What's it for you? Where are you foraging the most? And is that your favourite section? Oh, that's a hard question. Okay, I'll choose one. I'll choose one. We're just at the end of the mushroom season. My favorite place is the mushroom forest because this year, so much mushrooms, we've been getting buckets and everyone coming with me is going home with buckets of edible mushrooms. And it's incredible. You know, there's so much, so much. And the forest is so generous. The location, even though it's a plantation of exotics, pine trees, it still offers a strong ecology connected through mycelia, the mushrooms, which brings forward an incredible powerful force of nature to immerse yourself in. You go into the forest and everything disappears. You go in the forest looking for mushrooms and thrilled into your purpose. You know, you're going over there hunting for mushrooms and the time goes away and the cacatees come through and the wombats sniggle away and the kangaroos jump away. In the forest of exotics, Connecting to place, building narratives of connection and empathy in the messed up reality that we made of the world. But at the same time, this connection and empathy building are still so important and so valuable. And we all should partake. We should all engage, even minimally, with our backyard as caretakers, not just our lawnmowers, as caretakers. And Find out that there is benefit by loving your yard, your yard loves you back. Sorry, it's a bit too hippie, isn't it? But, you know, whatever. It's actually so beautiful. It makes me realise what such a relief it is to hear someone like you speak, actually, Diego. I didn't know that I was so anxious about what was happening, but when I hear you talk about wandering through the woods and collecting mushrooms in Australia and seeing wombats, I... I feel very moved. So thank you for sharing that with us. When you come back with your buckets of mushrooms to your own home, you've got some delicious recipes in your book. But what do you like to cook? What do you like to do with this said bucket? It changes all the time. At the moment, we're playing a lot with mushroom pate. You know, classics. You go quite home. posh, quite posh, actually. Quite posh, quite <laughs> posh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We go home, clean the mushroom, chop them up, cook them up in garlic, and oil and garlic and pasta sauce. You know, it just it's a quick and easy and fast way to just enjoy your meal. When you're cooking for your family, is it every sort of meal would have something that had been foraged? Is that something that is part of your everyday sort of behaviour? Yeah, there's a lot of things in my cupboard and my pickles and things like that. Lots of people would not have no idea what that thing is. 
seaweeds regularly make it in my meals. Just whenever there's family over, I just pull out the cheese, pull out the seaweeds. And apple cider vinegar from feral apples make it in all of my salads, you know. So mm-hmm. mushrooms come in in pies and, and risottos. What else? The fennel seeds. Whenever we bake something, there's fennel seeds. Things come often enough not as the main ingredients mm-hmm. because it doesn't need to be the main ingredient. You know, it just needs to be there. Like it always been, you know, people tend to think that when you learn about foraging, you never have to spend money at the green gross or ever again. Yeah. You still want to have potatoes. You're not going to forage potatoes <laughs> or pasta for that matter. But forage ingredient brings an incredible wealth of minerals, vitamins, the quality of fiber and the quality of micronutrients that don't exist any longer in the supermarket shelves. You bring in some wild flavor and wild reality into your nutritional reality. You're welcoming land into you. You metabolize place. I can open up a box on that, but it, there's no need for that. But just, just say it simple as it is. You're eating something wild, something wild comes into you. And there's good in that. Having a nod to where you live in all your meals is something quite precious and something that's obtainable, as you show, for everyone. Prior to coming online, Diego and I were talking, and in a couple of weeks' time, he's going back to Italy. He's going back to Italy to visit his family. He hasn't seen them for three years. It's been, you know, lockdowns and COVID. He's going to be taking copies, I'm sure, of his book over. What is your mum going to say about this? My mum will want me to tell her what's written in it because her English is not that good. So (laughs) I dedicate the book to my mum and my mum cannot read it. So, you know, I will need to do a bit of catch up, a bit of translating. I would love to tell her the stories because much of what I have was born in the seeds of my mum. The book is way more than that. The book is, it comes out of, as I said before, 20 years of talking to people and talking to this old migraine I was speaking of before, which they offer stories themselves. There are stories that are not mine in that book. They're being entrusted to me by knowledge holders from all over the world with the purpose to allow people to understand better that the plants around us are not there to annoy you. The plants around us are the one, is the ecology that we should pay attention to because it's the ecology best used to us. It's our co-evolutionary species. <laughs> it's us. Beautiful. And these old people know that. These old people know that there's no such thing as waste. You might not have the use for it, but that doesn't mean it's useless. Diego, you start the book talking growing up in Italy and of the influence that your mother has. You can tell the influence of all the people you've met along the way as you travel through your book. How would you describe yourself? Are you a forager? Are you a gardener? Are you a writer? Are you a teacher? Are you a son? Like, how, What words would you use, Diego Benente, to describe who you are? that has created this field guide to foraging? I don't want to sound some pretension, but I'm uh, probably the best, the best answer is I'm just a vessel. The stories are old, Not, nothing of me is mine. I'm just the one with the good jokes 
who can put them down in a book. But the stories are way older than me. And the stories belong to all. The stories are inside us all. As a storyteller, I'm just trying to tease them out from people. A great example is when I start a, a workshop, often enough I ask me, People say, who done foraging before? And I was like, oh, no, you know, oh, no, you know, I don't know. You know, I'm here to learn. And then I, straight after I asked, so who harvest mulberries before? Mulberries? Oh, yeah, I remember mulberries. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At school, yeah, everyone harvests mulberries. So you're a forager. Oh, what I offer is the possibility to unlock what's there already. And the stories allow that. The stories allow you to first remember features, remember narratives, and second, create connection points, create a lived experience that then people will remember. They will stay there forever, yeah? And once that is done, that my job is done, that's it. That's all I need to do. Just give the people the chance to connect to a wilder self, and tap into genetic memory, you know, the forest will do that for them. The land will do that for them. My job is to just create the the situation for this to happen and unfold. If I had to use some words to describe you, I would say generous, kind, respectful. I'd also say thank you so much for creating a book that we can all access and for reminding us that it's important just to stop, to look down, to look around. If you can pass on that gift, you've done everything. Thank you so much for joining us today. What a treat. It went so quickly. Absolute joy. On behalf of readings, on behalf of everybody that's listening, we are delighted to meet you. Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for read books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callion. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you.